Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail. Today was an historic day at Zoo Miami. The first ever kiwi bird hatched in the state of Florida was officially named. New One of our iconic birds born 13,000 kilometers away from home. The bird is named Peora in honor of an indigenous Maori leader who has dedicated his life to wildlife conservation in New Zealand. Powder is one of 60 kiwi living overseas, but... Well, a video of a kiwi being pushed and put up for selfies at a US Florida zoo has caused outrage. It shows the terrified kiwi being manhandled by visitors under bright lights. As it turns out, when it comes to kiwi outside our borders, there's not much the Department of Conservation can do. It is raising its concerns with the zoo via the US Association for Zoos and Aquariums. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says that is all we can ask the agency to do. But zoos have long been home to creatures from far-flung places. New Zealand's snow leopard population is officially at two after Wellington Zoo welcomed sisters Asher and Manju to their new multi-million dollar habitat. The big cats are a vulnerable species with fewer than 7,000 remaining in the wild. How do we try and protect our taonga species when they go overseas? And how do we care for exotic animals coming here? Michelle Impey is the executive director of Save the Kiwi, a national charity supporting kiwi conservation. What did she think when she heard about what happened to Pawara? I think I felt the same as much of the rest of the nation. It clearly wasn't ideal conditions for a bird, eh? Like having it out in really bright light, allowing people to touch and pat its head. And, you know, it sounded like a bit of loud noise. Yeah, a little skip. And when he'll stand there until it gets dark, before he goes in the box and then you wait like five seconds and it's magic he'll be <laughs> it wasn't allowed to hide when it was trying to run away so so look it's it's it wasn't great to see at all but i will you know i will say the good outcome of this is that you know everyone who felt the same way spoke up and absolutely um it was given in good faith that it would be managed controlled and looked after by uh, Miami Zoo. That's how we got some action out of this. It brought it to attention and we got a great result. We are profoundly apologetic, profoundly deep, heartfelt sorrow for what uh, we have done to offend the people of, of, of New Zealand. Um, this was a, a terrible mistake and, you know, it is why we immediately uh, eliminated the, the Kiwi encounter. What was wrong with what they were doing? It kind of goes against the nature of Kiwi. And, and I'll say this too, it sounds hypocritical because anyone could find photos of Kiwi events in New Zealand where the animal is out during the day and it's being touched by humans. So I think the difference with that one is having an animal um, with repeated exposure to stressful situations probably would not have been good for the long-term health of the animal. So the bright lights, the loud noise, the touching it on the head. Um, having said that, Tom, the, like humans, there are some animals that are more amenable to being socialized. So we don't know the actual health of Paora and the impact it had, but just from what we know from Kiwi, it would have been likely under a lot of stress. What kind of parts of what people were doing were particularly bad? We have some pretty some pretty tight standards that are set out in best practice manual in New Zealand for handling kiwi. So if there is a special event where a kiwi is shown to the public, sometimes if conditions are right, we say you can touch the feathers, but it would always be on the bum. So not the face, the head and the whiskers that kiwi have. They use their whiskers like a cat does to feel its way around. So they're highly sensitive. So so 
for that, having it, you know, touching the head, and you see some of the videos, you can see the kiwi, it was just like almost squishing it down into the bench top. How could this have happened if we have these guidelines? Yeah, look, it's a good question. And, and I think it's just one of those unfortunate things that, that slipped through the cracks, to be honest. So for the overseas facilities, because it, it is the question on the nation's lips is, you know, who who has oversight, who cares for them? So they also have, you know, their own husbandry manual. So they look to New Zealand for, for best practice and what's done. They have um, bodies overseas. So in New Zealand, the ZAA is the association that has oversight of the captive facilities to make sure that um, husbandry standards are, you know, at appropriate levels. Um, has eyes on the facilities here. So they have similar bodies overseas. In America, in this case, it's called the AZA. And there is a person overseas who is the species coordinator for Kiwi. So similar to New Zealand, where we have a person who is available for support and advice around Kiwi, there is a person available to support and advise those overseas facilities. So I think the difference there is that, of course, the overseas facilities are spread across, um, I think, three different continents and 16 or 17 facilities in different countries. So it's just a little more challenging to physically be there to see the facilities and have eyeballs on them. Do you feel the zoo just didn't have the expertise themselves? I would say for any situation like this, you'll never find that it's um, intention, you know, malicious intent. I, I think it was just literally they probably went, we've had this kiwi for three or four years since it's hatched. It seems to be thriving. It must be doing okay. I, I think it was an honest kind of misunderstanding of the care of the kiwi. But I do know one of the standards they have for the overseas birds is that any facility that is looking at coming into the kiwi program are required to send at least two staff to a facility that currently has kiwi. So they get that hands-on kind of experience and training before they get kiwi themselves. And that was done with Miami, but so I, I don't know how it happened, but I guess the good news going forward is they're not doing the encounters anymore and they are they are redesigning Paora's enclosures so he will have a much more appropriate enclosure. Well, they're out of quarantine and ready to charm, Wellington Zoo is this morning welcoming two female snow leopards. Asha and Manju. Wellington Zoo has paired up with Nepalese conservation group Mountain Spirit to help protect snow leopards, which are critically endangered in the wild in Nepal. Of course, our zoos in New Zealand are home to plenty of exotic species from overseas. For example, Wellington Zoo's new snow leopards. Karen Fifield is the zoo's chief executive and is also vice president of the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or WAZA. She tells me about the work involved in getting the snow leopards to the capital from Melbourne Zoo. So we already work with um, Nepalese conservation partners through our Red Panda program. And we work with about 14 partners around the world and also within New Zealand in terms of the animals that we care for at Wellington Zoo who are endangered or critically endangered. So it was really an extension of that work that we're already doing in Nepal that we worked with Red Panda Network to actually choose another conservation partner for snow leopards who are working in Nepal. And we now work with Mountain Spirit. They're based in Nepal and they work with communities and also in the field to protect snow leopards. What kind of value is added by working with these groups? When we have the animals in a progressive zoo like Wellington Zoo, when we're caring for them, ourselves, it's very important to think about what's happening in the wild with these animals. So that's a connection between the animals in our care 
and they're obviously their wild cousins. So how can we make a difference to the animals globally, not just about engaging communities when they come to visit the zoo and talking to our visitors about what can be done, but what are we doing on the ground, you know, around the world to protect the animals that, that are related to the animals that we care for at Wellington Zoo. It's a real connection. It's bringing that, that whole co-papa together that we are, looking after the environment totally so that all life can thrive, whether it's in New Zealand or whether it's in the Himalayas. So it's just to get an understanding of how they act in the Himalayas, how they live in the wild, so you can kind of use that to best look after them in Wellington. It's sort of that, but don't forget these are zoo-born animals. They're not from the Himalayas. Um, So they have obviously, you know, they've come from a zoo background, but... Their, their actual wild line did come from Kyrgyzstan, I think. Um, so it is about understanding what might be happening in their, with their natural history in the wild so that we can replicate as much as we can here in the zoo. Uh, but also it's about working with communities and with groups like Mountain Spirit who are actually doing work day to day to protect these animals in the wild. Are there any kind of cultural lessons you learn from them in terms of Uh, how to care for the animals? Well, it's really interesting because um, in Nepal, the um, snow leopards are called the protectors of the mountain. So what we talk about in our interpretive work here at the zoo, we talk about us protecting the protectors. So connecting back to those, um, the legends and the stories that come from the Nepalese people, the Nepali people about snow leopards and what they mean to them in terms of being the protectors of the mountain. And then how do these communities live side by side with snow leopards in the wild? You say that they're the protectors of the mountain. Are they Nepal's Kiwi equivalent? Well, they, they might be. Um, I, there's a lot of animals living in the Himalayas, of course. Um, but like often these stories that people have or Indigenous cultures have about animals are about these these animals that are are elusive within their environment, but people have to live side by side. And you can look at that across Indigenous cultures all around the world. Like if you think about Native Americans and the stories they have about wolves. Um, so it, it really is a connection of those those animals and the spirit of those animals and what what those spirits of those animals give to that environment where they're found. And people then start to tell stories about those animals. And that's worldwide with Indigenous cultures and First Nations people. So have any of these ideas that you talk about, have any of them been used and or reflected in the display and the enclosure of the snow leopards? So we had um, some people in Wellington, some Nepali people, actually record some of these stories for us and people can sit in the interpretive, there's a little cubby, we call it, and people can sit in the cubby and they can listen to the Nepali people talk about these, these stories about snow leopards. In the high mountain pastures of Nepal, the legendary snow leopard inspires many different beliefs. In Buddhism, we believe that snow leopards are born to remove our sins from our past lives. And they've been recorded and written by Nepali people, not by us, which is, makes it a lot more authentic. Mm. What about the environment of the enclosure? Like I've seen photos and you've kind of got little hills and that kind of thing. I don't know if they're quite mountains, but <laughs> it's not like just flat land. It's probably a bit of a Wellington hill. I mean, have you used that or have you altered that in any way to make it a bit more of a natural terrain for them? 
Yeah, so we evoke the mountains, if you like. <laughs> um, so it was never an intent to recreate the mountains. It was about evoking the mountains using a part of the zoo that is quite hilly so the animals can get up high, they can look out over the suburbs of Newtown and they can actually get a really good view of their environment. And so thinking about what the type of terrain snow leopards might live in, because there's a misnomer that people think snow leopards live in snow, they actually live on the scree slopes and they will go into the snow line if they're looking for looking for prey, but they don't actually live in the snow all the time. So we had a lot of um, rocks that we got from the quarry. Um, we had some mock rocking built with no polystyrene, um, which is really beautiful. It looks like natural rock. And we've got caves that the, the snow leopards can go into. Um, we've got a whole range of different things that they can use within the habitat that, that really displays some of their natural behaviours. You're going to get fake snow or if it, if it, no, if it, if it snows in Wellington, who no. knows? Well, it does snow in Wellington occasionally, but that we actually had a, an environmental engineer look at the temperatures of the range state of um, snow leopards in the Himalayas compared to the temperature that you might find in Wellington and just to see if there was any comparatives. And we found like a 1.5 degree difference in the average temperature that you would find in a snow leopard in the wild and what you'd find in Wellington. It's so that much. was very pleasing for us. Yes. Yeah, not much, not yeah. much at all. And I mean, I think these animals have come from Melbourne with much higher temperatures. I think they're loving the Wellington weather. <laughs> they probably are, it. yeah, yeah. Love the wet in the wild. Yeah, it's like fantastic. This suits us perfectly. Like Zoo Miami, Wellington Zoo offers close encounters with many of its animals, like giraffes, meerkats, sun bears, red pandas and tigers. So how do they make sure they're doing the right thing? Animal encounters um, are, happen in a lot of zoos around the world and aquariums as well. And it's, it's, we have, through our Zoo and Aquarium Association Australasia and the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we have very clear what we call animal visitor interaction guidelines. And these are documents that all members of those associations must sign up to and must also, in terms of their accreditation, provide documentation about how they're actually doing these encounters. But I'd say the most important part of that animal visitor interaction guideline, and I was the chair of the Ethics and Animal Welfare Committee for WASA when we actually wrote those guidelines, the biggest thing around welfare for animals is about choice and agency. And the animals having the potential to say, I don't want to be, I don't want to do this today, and being able to move away and the and people then have to accept that the animals have chosen today, they're not going to do it. It's all about choice. And sometimes our red pandas don't come down. They usually do for a grape, but <laughs> they sometimes they say no. Um, and so people then, we're quite happy to refund people and rebook people, but the animals choose um, what they're going to do that day. And we have stopped encounters over the years, like with our cheetahs and our lions, when they got older and they just were giving us very clear signals that they didn't want to do it anymore. So it's not like we force the animals to do it and we do abide by those guidelines about training of staff, um, all of these different things that we have to document about encounters. Do you get any advice from, say, the countries you come from? Like, do you get any advice from Madagascar, 
you know, Madagascar animal experts who might help you with the encounters of the lemur or something like that? Well, actually, our chief operating officer is on the Madagascar Fauna and Flora Group board. And so he's the treasurer. So we have quite a lot of connections with zoos around the world involved in Madagascar and also in Madagascar themselves. And then there's also organisations like the Duke Lima Centre in um, America. And we all talk to each other about these things, about what might be appropriate, what might not be appropriate. And also, um, I would say that my animal care team and my animal science team or our animal science team and animal care team really uh, so many of them are world experts anyway our veterinary team know what they're doing and so they would give us guidance about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate do you ever think we'd see a story like the one we saw in miami here in new zealand with an organization like a zoo well i won't say never (laughs) but i would say that in amongst the members of our zoo and aquarium association and our waza members based on all the guidance and the strategy documents and the guidelines and and the codes of conduct that we have to abide by, I would say no, because those association members have signed up to a code of ethics and and to those guidelines in terms of the practices that they have. People who are not members of our association, I I can't speak for them, but I definitely know as a past president of our Zoo and Aquarium Association Australasia and now as vice president of WAZA, that the organisations who are members of those associations do value and abide by those guidelines. Just on New Zealand, and uh, we're quite conscious of our native Taonga here in Aotearoa, aren't we? We're really kind of conscious of tikanga as well. So do you think that makes us better in terms of caring for animals? I think it's the same for a lot of countries, actually. If I think about Australia and some of the the native animals in Australia, you know, they're very, very important to the Australian psyche. And I think that it's the same with us, with Kiwi, with a lot of um, a lot of other bird species. And I think it's the same, as I was saying before, about Indigenous cultures really have links to um, the native species that they that they live with. And I think we can actually, I think that's something we do very well in New Zealand where we actually work with kaitiaki in terms of how we actually go about working with native Tonga, as you say. And I mean, we have amazing relationships with Iwi with some of the animals we care for, like Ngāti Kawata with Tuatara. And I think that bringing together of kaitiaki, tikanga, all of the things that we abide by in New Zealand, I, I think it's a really beautiful thing and we should actually guard it very well. And I know when I'm at the World Association, I talk about what New Zealand does in terms of its native Tonga. And I'm very proud of what we do in terms of that connection that we all regard these animals as spirits in their own right. Has what happened in Miami given you cause to reconsider anything that you do at Wellington Zoo? As I said before, we're always thinking about what we do and we're always looking for better. And I think, you know, we have just refurbished our um, our Kiwi house, uh, Te Amahina, because we wanted to make sure that the environment was even better than what it was before. Because your Kiwi house closed after some bird deaths a few years ago. Tahi, a one-legged Kiwi that had been with the zoo for 15 years, died a fortnight ago after suffering similar symptoms to two other birds who died earlier. It's reopened now and 
it was really interesting when we had those Kiwi deaths because there was no connection as to why. Um, mm. And the, the vets spent a lot of time really trying to find the cause. But, you know, and we worked very closely with Department of Conservation on looking at that. The fact that Pororo was hatched overseas to me makes no difference on the standard of care he should receive. It's still a Tonga, it's still a precious Kiwi. It doesn't matter that he was hatched here or hatched there. So so that doesn't change. But as far as the, I know there's been a bit of a petition and a bit of a, you know, some desire to bring, bring all of our Kiwi home. And it's not, to, I mean, to me, this is my personal perspective that it's, I don't have a problem with there being an overseas population. It's, I guess, no different than us having elephants and tigers and everything else we have in zoos that have been gifted or loaned to us from other from other countries. So as long as they are cared for um, in a in a in a you know an appropriate manner for the animal and that they're contributing to the advocacy and education of it as a threatened species, like to me, I am okay with them being held overseas. I don't think we need to bring them home. I don't think it's appropriate to want to bring them home. The risk of introducing um, disease or parasites to the population here, I mean, that risk to me far outweighs the benefit of bringing them home. My message for I guess New Zealand has been, I have loved the passion that has come out of this recent incident. Like it started a conversation about Kiwi that that is great. And it, you know, it obviously needs to be had. Well, why do you think that important conversation is? Oh, look, okay. I should say anytime Kiwi hits the spotlight, it's great from my perspective <laughs> because it, it helps us talk about the issues and the challenges. But, but look, if it is, you know, if hopefully Paora is an isolated incident, but, if it's not, it's great. It allows us to go, okay, let's review it. If we can do better, we'll do better. No, no one's infallible. And if this has revealed some um, some flaws in the system, then that gives a chance to correct them. So I, again, I think it's great. I, I love the passion and the outpouring. And I guess the it, it shows positive that can come from people expressing discontent. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Flo Wilson. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Michelle Impey and Karen Fifield. Ma te wa.